Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Avid Ka, and I talk about how you can start, run, and sell a bootstrap business. This episode is called So You Got an Offer How to Do Due Diligence on Your Potential Acquirer. And let's get started. There's almost no better and at the same time terrifying feeling than when you receive an email from somebody who wants to acquire you. There was great joy when that happened to us at Feedback Panda, but immediately after we started to think about the level of risk we were about to expose our company to. The moment you allow a third party into your company, you lose a little bit of control. Somebody's checking out if you're an exciting business for them to purchase, and they will require some information that you never showed anybody before. Making sure that you don't get into trouble from that kind of sharing is paramount. In a company's acquisition, it is usually the acquirer who conducts thorough due diligence. We believe that before that happens, you, the seller, should do an equally exhaustive due diligence of your potential acquirer. I'll show our experience on how we vetted our acquirer, what the red flags to look out for were and are, and what to f- where to find more examples of successful and failed exits and how to prepare for your own company when that happy day arrives. So first, let me make it clear that the strategies and actions suggested here are based on the anecdotal evidence and the experience from going through an acquisition process with one company, right? While we successfully sold Feedback Panda for what amounted to a life-changing amount of money, the process may differ for you and your company. I'm not a lawyer and this is not legal advice. So please consider getting professional legal advice uh, when you face an acquisition offer. What I'm sharing here is my experience and my insights alone. So that kind of leads to the question, leads to the question, right? When do you need a lawyer? And that's a question that many founders ask at this point. They received an email or a phone call and there's some party that's expressing interest in buying their company or product. And at that point, most founders wonder if they should talk, should yeah, should talk to a lawyer immediately. I don't think that's required. At least not at this point, because lawyers are expensive. And if you were to engage one for every single party that expresses interest, you would be poor pretty soon after. Usually, you will want to hire legal professionals when you start signing documents to lock you into things that cannot be easily reversed, like complicated non-disclosure agreements or agreements that forbid you from talking to other parties, like most letter of intents. Once you're presented with such a document, I would suggest finding a lawyer and have a cursory talk about the process immediately. If you feel that anything might limit you beyond the scope of mutual due diligence between the prospective buyer and you, intensify the conversation with your legal counsel. And the moment you're ready to sign a letter of intent, you should definitely involve a lawyer. From here on out, you'll be in the deep end and you'll make you need to make sure that you're protected. You can rest assured that the buyer has a lawyer on their side as this is probably not the first time they've purchased a company or product and they will have good relationships with lawyers. So they have access to them usually at all times. So make sure you have one too. So what do you do as soon as somebody reaches out? So okay, you received that email, somebody's interested in your business. So here's what we did when we received our first offers for Feedback Panda. We started something called the Acquisition Sanity Checklist. The first and most important question you will need to answer is if this is a real person with the intent to actually purchase your business. There's a lot of bad actors that are trying to scam business owners or extract sensitive information from companies. 
good actors will have a track record of successfully buying businesses before. Bad actors will not. So you start with researching the company and researching the person. To verify the truthfulness of the offer, research the person that reached out to you and the company that they're working for. Like in real estate, acquisitions are mostly a reputation game. So parties who want to continue acquiring valuable businesses will need to present themselves as honest, respectful businesses. One botched acquisition or some shady behavior will cause a lot of damage to the brand and bad news travels fast, particularly in the startup industry. So look for traces of bad behavior and complaints, both for the person reaching out to you and their company. That's quickly done with the Google search with something like company name and then acquisition problem. There will be lots of articles and interviews where something didn't go well. I guarantee you that. And if you can find anything else, well, there's more. Look for public appearances by the person reaching out to you or the CEO of the company that has expressed some sort of intent to acquire you. Check how you feel about dealing with this person. If you feel like an instinctive attraction, that's great. If you don't like them, make a note. Because while an acquisition is a deal between companies, it's transacted between people. If the relationship doesn't work, the deal might become sour at a point where you can't afford it at all. The next step is researching the portfolio and making a list. You look into the companies and products that the acquirer already owns and operates. Are these businesses you want to be associated with? It's the first question you should ask. Do you think they could benefit from your business strategically? Or is it just a financially motivated acquisition? You'll have a much clearer understanding of this once you figure out what your acquirer is already doing and what they're doing most of the time. This is also easily done through Google search. You can usually find portfolio companies and products by Googling for the full legal name of the acquirer, as this name will always be in the terms and conditions of all the companies that they uh, run, that they own and operate, which are, um, yeah, always using the, most of the time using the same terms of conditions. I found this with a lot of private equity companies because they purchase not companies, but businesses and products. So the product itself gets transferred and is owned by the private equity company. So you will find their name in the terms and uh, conditions fairly soon after the actual sale. So by looking for that name in terms and conditions, you will find all the portfolio companies, even those that are not listed, that are not publicly shared by your acquirer. At this point, you should make your first list. You put down the name of the company and the product, and you find out who sold it to your acquirer. That will require some exploration and research um, as pre-acquisition names are usually removed from the properties after they're purchased, but you will still find it. There's uh, the Wayback Machine and archives on the internet where you can find this information. Often you will find old forum posts of people um, that ran and then sold their business. So even though there's no trace of their name in the business anymore, you can still find the humble beginnings, I would say, particularly if they're from the developer field. Developers will leave a lot of traces in online communities, just check Stack Overflow or any kind of forum for the particular language that this developer uses or that is used in the product, and you'll find those people. So yeah, make that list. You can likely find traces um, of the names of these founders in the following locations. Let me just give you a list of this. So old company blog posts on the property 
that it was sold. Source code of the website, there is often some sort of credit in there. Old commits in public open source code repositories. At some point, people like use libraries for their product and then they commit changes that they needed and the name of the business is mentioned. So you can find it there. And then public interviews about the sale of the company, which is the more recent content that gets created when people leverage the sale of the business to get some public exposure. Finding public information about the sale and the conversation that often happens around it will give you some insight into the process as well, as founders who have sold their business are frequently asked about the details of their process. I talked about this myself in the Indie Hackers uh, podcast a few months ago, um, and that was a couple months after going through the sale with 3Play Panda, so it was all fresh and it was all still there. If you cannot find public information about the sale, you should wonder why. Because it doesn't have to be sinister, and some founders really like to keep the privacy, particularly when they sold their business for many, many millions of dollars. People just don't want to share that. Being too public can lead to a lot of trouble and stress in that moment. So many founders keep it a secret. So finding those founders will take some work, but it's worth it. Next step is to request a list of references from your acquirer. Right? So we have made this list just now um, of all the potential portfolio companies, and now we request a list from them. So once you have a reasonable list of at least five founders who've sold to your acquirer before, I suggest asking the person who contacted you to give you a list as well. Ask them for a list of founders you can contact and ask about the process. Many acquirers are prepared for this and they will present you with a few names and email addresses and they might even make introductions to these kind of founders. While this is an excellent sign of trust and transparency, I advise you to be careful. The list an acquirer gives you will likely only include references that will be very positive and supportive of the acquirer. In most cases, that is because the acquirer is doing honest and reputable work. So the references will reflect that. However, there's a chance that a few people had less than optimal experiences and they are likely not on the list. So now we have two lists. To find the most interesting people to talk to, take your list, take their list, and make a short list with the founders that are just on your list but not on theirs. Your chances of finding potential red flags and problems are the highest here. Call those founders first or send them an email explaining why you're interested in talking to them. If they have any warnings to give, they will reach out very quickly. If they're not responding, they likely just want to be left alone. So don't dig too deep. Then call the founders on the list the acquirer gave you. While those founders are pre-selected for you, they will still give you great insight into the process and what to look out for. In our case, the introductions from that list gave us the chance to talk to people we had only ever interacted with on Twitter and having a personal connection to people who went through the same thing makes selling the company much less scary as well. So it's nice to be able to exchange this kind of yeah, supportive information from my perspective at least i've been doing this now talking to other people who are interested in selling their business it's nice to give them some sort of moral support because as stressful as it is it's definitely worth it so now let's look into what you should be asking in a due diligence call because you will have these kind of calls um and as, as a due diligence call that you have with the people on your lists, right? I'm not talking about the later due diligence, I'm talking about this kind of um, 
acquire due diligence that you're doing. So here are a few questions that we would ask in every call to anyone on our list and on the list that our acquirer was giving us. The first question is, how was the transition period? Was it frantic or was it professional? Just giving us some insight. You want to learn about the amount of work that is ahead of you and at the moment you hand over the reins, right? Some companies make it extremely easy. So they may already have a team in place to take over the operations. Others might need you to stick around and help them get on their feet. Ask which steps your reference uh, in the call had to take while transitioning the company and if there were any surprises. Second question. Do you feel the acquirer did your business good? Are their goals similar to yours? Because alignment is incredibly hard to predict. It's a mindset problem and you cannot expect to know how compatible you'll be before um, you're actually working with the acquirer. But you can ask the founder you're calling how well they were aligned. Were there differences of opinion? Where did the business go during the transition? They won't be able to give you all the details, but they will be able to express their sentiments. The next question we would ask was, did they trap you in some way? Did you need to stay on longer than required? That kind of thing. This is really about clarity and expectation management. You're likely selling a company with future plans in mind for yourself. You may have other projects to take care of, like personally or professionally. Ask the founder you're calling if the acquirer made an effort to be truthful and clear and precise in that kind of communication. Ask how well they responded to questions about these things as well. Next question is, did they take care of the team? If you have employees, they will likely migrate over to your acquirer. Ask the founder you're calling about how smooth the transition went for them, if they had any employees at all. Ask if people were let go and how well the ones that stayed were integrated in the team. Were there incentives for their employees to stay on or were there guarantees? Like how were the employees treated? This is very important for you to be able to communicate that to your employees at some point, if you have them, but even for contractors and people you just hired on the side, it's still important to see where this is going because you built relationships with these people and that is also part of your brand. So you might want to take care of that. Another question we ask is, do they understand the business they run already? What is the ultimate goal with them? Right? What, what, what are they really going for? Some acquirers have been around for a long time and may have dozens of similar businesses in the portfolio. Others may just be starting. Ask your reference for how well the acquirer understood the business they bought. How much work went into this kind of non-operational knowledge transfer, like the purpose and the mission? If you have to explain to them what a SaaS business is when you run a SaaS business, that is not why you want to start out. So it's important that there is some sort of baseline knowledge that the acquirer has, because if they don't, the amount of work you have to do is quite a bit higher than if they're already pretty much running these kind of things and have been running them for years. Right. So another question we also looked into that kind of is connected here is figure out if they acquired you for financial or for strategic reasons. Because if your business is acquired for financial reasons, the acquirer might have different expectations of your involvement than if they bought your business for strategic reasons. Get a feeling for these kinds of acquisitions. 
made by your acquirer in the past. You can pretty much figure this out by having a couple of calls with people. If you find a mix, that's fine. If you find one of them alone, that's also fine. You just want to know what you're going to be dealing with. And it's important also for your involvement, right? How much do you need to be there? How much do you need to help them? Because if you're the only person offering a certain kind of product uh, in the market and they acquire you for a strategic reason, they're going to try to get you um, involved in everything for quite a long time to make sure that you produce this kind of stuff. If you purely um, acquire for financial reasons, you can just zone out and um, you can just like, hand over the reins to somebody else and the business will continue running and that will be fine, right? There's just different levels of involvement there. Last question we asked or last thing we wanted to find out is making notes on just what stands out right? What is your reference talking about? What are they not talking about? Are there topics they don't want to talk about to you at all? And were they, can, can it change the subject of the conversation? Are there things they're very passionate about? Put those notes on your list. Just put them there. Because in the moment when you have this conversation, likely with a person that you already may admire, but that you already find very interesting and always wanted to talk to, there's a different level of energy going. So if you can record it, that's fine. Likely not going to happen because it's uh, the business secrets and you don't really want to record other people's um, knowledge that they shared in confidence with you. But just make notes for yourself on what is being said so that you, later you can actually go through what was said and get a different, more relaxed feeling and some more reflected insight into what things were talked about. Do a background check on the money. That's another really important part. Ask for and do a background check on where the money on the company that acquires you comes from. Are these sources clean? Is your acquirer willing to talk about the origin of the funding? Is it publicly available information or are they secretive about it? Because private equity is often, well, it's private. But that shouldn't mean that you have to be in the dark, right? When asked for in confidence, a good actor will usually give you at least some information on the funding they used to invest with or that the funds come from. So it's always interesting to ask. Sometimes you might not find out. Um, and that's fine, too, if you're fine with that. But it's, it's an important step when it comes to, I think, just positional equality in this whole transaction to know where the money comes from. So let's talk about red flags to look out for. Here are several things that should raise the alarm in your mind when you're doing your own due diligence on your potential acquirer. And um, it did not happen to us. Like this is stuff that I found in a lot of conversations with other founders and by other founders. There's a lot of interviews. There's a lot of podcasts where people share their experience. Our transition and our due diligence obviously worked out well because we chose to sell and we did not fall into any traps. But this kind of stuff seems to happen quite a bit. So that's why I'm talking about it here. And one of them, one of the red flags is that there's no public information about the acquirer at all, because it's relatively easy to actually create a presence on the internet. And if your acquirer does not have this, you should wonder why they want to stay in the shadows. A company blog, or at least a landing page, should be present for any serious business, often kind of mandated by, um, well, the society and the industries they live in. But if there is none 
of there's no such presence, this points at a severe information asymmetry, one that is artificially upheld. In the end, that makes an interaction with such a potential acquirer very risky for somebody like you, because you're a founder who is to both run the business and research another business at the same time. You just don't want to jump into that. So if there's no public information, that's a very red flag. Second one is you ask for a specific reference and they ignore that request or they try and dissuade you from talking to that reference. If there is a person that somebody doesn't want to talk, doesn't want you to talk to, that should make you quite wary. As I said, the acquisition business is a reputation game, right? And if there's dirt that a company wants to sweep under the rug by making it inaccessible to you, that shows a lack of transparency and professionalism. And you really want to dig into this because there's something in there they might not want you to see. For whatever reason, they might be perfectly justified in not having you talk to somebody who has a very, very weird perspective. But still, it's up to you to make these choices and not up to them. The next red flag is that they ask you to sign an extensive NDA before even talking to you. The more complicated legal documents you're presented with, the worse off you'll be. Acquirers have legal teams to deal with M&A while you have to run your business, grow your business, and deal with the acquisition offers. There's much more risk to your business that in these talks than to theirs. So why would they need to annoy you with the time-wasting legal requirement like this? After all, it's just a conversation, right? And it's best, it is wasting your time. And at its worst, it could be an intentional attempt at distracting you from doing your work. Another red flag is that they demand access to very sensitive data. If an acquirer asks you to give them access to things like your customer contact information, stop and think immediately. What could somebody do with this information? Is the acquisition offer an attempt to grab your data? Make sure that they only have access to read-only data, limited views, and can easily export all of your sensitive information. I've actually heard this happen multiple times that people came in with an acquisition offer, got a lot of access to information and ran away with the whole MailChimp list, with the whole intercom customer base, because they could. So don't give people the opportunity. And that brings us to another red flag that is highly related, is that they want to see the real data instead of just reports. If an acquirer asks to see the data of individual customers before you sign a letter of intent and start the real due diligence, be careful. Even after signing the letter of intent, which is a non-binding agreement, you should make efforts to restrict access to this information. The acquirer can always back out of the transaction later, but you stand to gain nothing. If you must, give them partial access, but don't give them the keys just yet, because that's what happens when you actually sell the business, not before. When it's transition day, that's when you hand over full access to the full information. Anything before is a limited and hopefully very selective part of what you, what you own, like the data that you have access to. One last thing that could be a red flag is that they are not a culture fit. Working uh, the transition will be very hard if you're not on their level and they are not on yours. During the transition period, you'll effectively be colleagues and you'll be spending a lot of time with people inside your acquirer's organization. If you feel that everyone you've been talking to feels weird to interact with, you might want to consider backing out of the deal. At Feedback Panda, we made sure to check for all of these red flags when talking to potential acquirers. When we interacted with Shoreswift Capital, we were pleasantly surprised to find how professional and transparent they were from the beginning. But we still checked. 
for every single potential issue and we found no problems we from the beginning we looked at like is there any dirt on them we talked to people that were not on their list and we looked for all these red flags luckily they didn't appear and so we sold to them but we we still checked it's important to have a nice culture fit but it's not the only thing because trust is earned that's why you're doing your own due diligence on your acquirer and that's why that's essential and it needs to be conducted with care Try being realistic about this transaction because there will always be small obstacles and conflict of interest and there might just be things that happen that are not intentional. So don't like back out of it immediately. But you can talk through these things usually and if you can't, that's a problem. In the end, both businesses want to benefit from an acquisition and an optimistic perspective will make this an enjoyable process. So finally... Now that you have taken an in-depth look at your potential acquirer, here are a few things you can do to actually prepare for their due diligence on you. The first thing I would recommend is following the scene. Listen to podcasts and read blog posts by those kind of funds and private equity companies and brokers in your industry. That way you will understand not only what multiples businesses are selling at, which is important for you to be able to value your business, but you will also get to know the people who are involved in these businesses. Because I had been aware of SureSwift Capital long before they had reached out to us. Since they've been present in the bootstrapping scene for a long, long time and providing blog content and being on podcasts and interviews quite a bit. Another thing is to have a profit and loss sheet ready, always, and keeping it current. This is just good business hygiene. If you're tracking your business metrics, you might also want to use several analytics tools like ProfitWell and Metrics. If you're among the emerging group, of founders who are using planning and forecasting tools like Summit, just have your forecasts and plans available for acquirers to look into might give you an edge when negotiating the sale price. Set up read-only accounts with these tools so you can quickly provide them to interested parties without giving over your full information. Read the book Built to Sell and listen to the Built to Sell radio, it's a podcast. John Warlow offers hundreds of episodes about people selling their business, mostly as interviews. I listen to almost all of them, hundreds of them, in preparation for our own due diligence. And the recurring themes in those interviews gave me well valuable insight into the questions that I should be asking and the things that I could expect. And most of all, relax. I know this is an exciting time, and the thought of life-changing amounts of money are just a prevalent thing and just as prevalent as the thoughts of the dangers and risks of such an important transaction talk to your spouse talk to your parents talk to trusted friends don't rush things and most importantly keep your business running that's the most important part because what sounds like a dream opportunity can turn into a risky gamble and you will back out that is perfectly fine and maybe even necessary sometimes and you will know when the time is right and now you also know what you'll need to do I want to use this opportunity to talk about three more things that are not in the article, but that I think are important for a bootstrap founder in particular to think about. Because like I said, you will be spending most of your time actually doing what you've always been doing, running your business. So you don't really have as much time to deal with uh, the legal and just like structural implications that a sale can actually have on your business. I want to talk about brokers. I want to talk about alignments between founders of a business. And then 
about talking to employees. So let me just get through these three topics here. Brokers are very interesting, particularly for bootstrap founders who haven't sold a business yet. Right? It's always complicated. It's always a process that has a that has a lot on the line. There's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of um, risk involved to everybody, both the acquirer and both the person selling their business. There's always risk in there. You risk that the thing doesn't go through as a founder. You risk that somebody steals your information or that somebody just ruins your business uh, after they purchase it. There's a lot of different risks on different levels. For the acquirer, obviously, the risk is that you sold your business for something that is uh, much much worse than um, what you claimed it would be, right? You can give them a lot of fake numbers. You can give them a lot of inflated numbers. And obviously that's why due diligence exists. So the, you can kind of fact check these things, but you can give them an outlook on an industry as a founder that is very optimistical because we are optimists most of the time, at least as founders. So when reality hits, they might find that your optimistic projections are not really true. So it's, it's important to understand that all of this can be kind of neutralized by going through a broker, because as a founder, you will talk to brokers um, that have done this quite a few times before, right? Most brokers that are in the industry, and I will mention a few in a, in a couple seconds, they've done hundreds, if not thousands of these transactions. So um, it is possible for you to reach out to a broker and get a valuation of your business and put the business in the database and have them talk to potential buyers and deal with all of this for you up to the point where you actually sign the documents and go into like a due diligence phase with the potential acquirer for fee. And that means that you have some sort of, wouldn't call it necessarily protection, but it kind of is, but you have some guidance by somebody who wants to make a commission. Broker commissions are somewhere between 10 and 20% of the sales price, which is a lot. But you have to understand also that most brokers claim that by having done this before multiple times, they are able to get you a better price. So you sell, you would sell your company, let's say $4 million and they get you two, but they only take 10%, right? So you essentially have, yeah, made 800,000 more than before because they take two. So that would that would be a potential situation that could happen if it happens, right? Most brokers will not get you twice the amount of money that your initial offer would get, but negotiations is always uh, always a part of it. And the broker has done this before. And it's their interest to get as high a sales price as possible. It's also in their interest to sell your company to the network. So there's a potential misalignment of interests when you do this. But I think for first-time founders, and I've talked to a lot of founders who've done this with their first business, using a broker is a good idea. You don't need to, though. And we didn't use one. We communicated with a couple of brokers in the beginning of um, the time when we were interested potentially in selling the business. But we figured out that we could just have these kind of conversations with the potential acquirers ourselves because there was not too much complexity to the first ones that we had. I think our business was just small enough to not warrant uh, gigantic legal teams and gigantic um, documents that a lot of lawyers would have to go through. 
Um, we had a lawyer. We took a lawyer. And once we had a document that ha actually had some impact on what we could be, talk about, what we could do, we got a lawyer and we had him look at the documents. And the first thing he said was, that, wow, this is fairly boring. He was surprised by how boring the documents were that we actually got. So like, there was nothing interesting there. There was nothing he needed to correct. It was just really, really simple. So that was, I guess both due to the fact that we were a small company and the fact that Shurswift Capital has been doing this like dozens of times before and they've just perfected a model on how to acquire a SaaS business and it works. Right? Obviously, it worked super well with us. So you don't need to have um, a broker, but you can. There are a number of brokers out there that are quite renowned in the SaaS community. I think the top three names here would be FE International, um, Quiet Light Brokerage, and Empire Flippers, but there's just many more. And I think just Googling for all or all three of them will give you a lot of potential alternatives. Just check out the website, see what kind of um, products they have brokered before and see if that is interesting to you. But I, I guess don't force it because if you don't have any incoming interest at this point, even though you're publicly communicating founder with your product, you might just need to grow your business a bit more to get onto the radar of people that are actually interested in buying you. And the thing is, you can always use a broker later, right? You can always bring them into um, discussion at any point, at least until you sign a document that says you can't, which is part of the letter of intent usually. So that is... Um, that is a, an, always an option. Look into it, read their promo materials. They often sponsor conferences in the space so you can meet people there because obviously for a broker, it's interesting to find SaaS founders that go to SaaS founder conferences. So you could just communicate with people at these conferences or in the surrounding kind of social functions as well. That is always an option. So now that we've talked about brokers, I want to get to my second point, which is alignment between the founders and your company, because that is also very important when it comes to this phase. Because the moment you start thinking about selling a business, you need to have people on board. And this kind of bleeds into the third thing I want to talk about here today which is talking to your employees about it. And I think the distinction is clearly that all founders of a business should be immediately informed when there's this kind of acquisition talk happening, while most employees of a business or contractors or other people that you kind of employ in some fashion probably should wait until they hear this kind of information, until this is at a much later stage. So I recommend heavily that... You talk to your co-founders immediately when you get an offer. You talk to your co-founders immediately when you think you should be doing it. Just try to find alignment in um, what your co-founders think if you have them. Of course, if you're a solo founder, then it doesn't really matter. You make these choices, even though it's always important to get your life partners and your family members on board if it's a very, very big change. But... It's really important to have alignment between co-founders when it comes to the intent to selling a business. Because to some people, this might not be their intent at all. Like you might have a co-founder and you would like to sell it for a couple million dollars and your co-founder wants to continue growing it until it's uh, at an eight or a nine figure kind of valuation and sell for that. So it won't sell for a couple of years. That is a problem. And if you don't address it, then um, you're going to have a lot of trouble down the line. So that alignment is crucial. Let's talk about your employees for a second here, if you have them, if you don't, well, it doesn't apply to you, obviously, but 
there's a lot of founders that I've talked to that have employees and most of them have chosen to not inform them while they were doing this kind of due diligence work. Just keep the employees focused on running the business because essentially if you sell your business, your employees will continue to be employees. They just won't be your employees anymore, right? So you're kind of scaring people and confusing people by involving them too early in a process that might not happen at all. Particularly if you sell your business to a company that has different internal protocols, you kind of don't want to scare people into quitting the job over the uncertainty of if they're going to keep theirs or not. I mean, this is a kind of um, self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. If they're uncertain that they might yeah, lose their job, they might quit and hence lose their job. So you want to make sure you inform them early enough to give them the opportunity to react to things. But you also want to make sure you don't jump the gun and involve them in a process that is not completed yet, right? Once you've signed the actual purchase agreement and once money has hit your account, different story. Once you're so deep in due diligence that there's no alternative than letting a couple people in your business know that you're doing this because they are the people holding the keys to the data that people need to look into. Also, no question there. But you get an email from somebody who might want to buy a business, don't post that in the Slack channel just yet, or just don't yell it out immediately. I think it's important to keep a sane distance for the people doing the actual work in the business from all this often highly chaotic potential that comes with an acquisition. Because for many people, and there's examples all over the internet, there's been a blog post recently by Josh Pickford of Bear Metrics about he almost sold his business for $5 million, but it fell through. And there, there was so much stress. He had so much to do, so many things that went wrong and so many things that he had to take care of that were not related to the core business of Biometrics, which is building a pretty awesome business analytics tool. And if you want to keep your business and keep the brand as being a business that builds a pretty awesome business analytics tool, you don't want to spend too much time with people who might or might not acquire your business. So it's very important to keep this stuff away from the actual internal operations of your business. And I think that's up to you as a founder. That's up to you as a leader and as the entrepreneurial part of the business to deal with and keep the boat running. I think this concludes my thoughts on seller-side due diligence. I think it's very important. The concept of this doesn't seem to be talked about too much because all due diligence is usually of a very rich company looking into your very small company and checking if everything's fine. But you do have the power to do due diligence yourself. And as a bootstrap founder, you have the resources. You, you will likely be um, savvy enough to Google You'll be capable of talking to people in your networks, which is very likely consisting of other bootstrap founders who may know people as well. So at that position, when you are being asked to open up information, just request that the company who wants to look into your information also opens up a bit as well, which is why I wrote this article. So thank you very much 
for listening to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast today. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Avid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And you can check out the blog at thebootstrappedfounder.com. If you want to support me and the Bootstrap Founder Podcast, please leave a rating and the review on Apple Podcasts and wherever you subscribe to this podcast. It'll help other founders or founders-to-be to find the podcast and learn more about starting, running, and selling their bootstrap businesses. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.